Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of Greece and Rome. Chapter 55. The Seven Kings of Rome. In Chapter 26, we briefly heard the story of Aeneas's flight from Troy and his arrival in Italy and the subsequent foundation of the city of Rome. In this chapter, we'll go into the story of what happened in a little bit more detail. We will also look at what happened after Romulus died and what the legends are of the early days of Rome. As we know, Aeneas's son Ascanius, who changed his name to Iulius, built the new city which had been prophesied. This city was not Rome. It was called Alba Longa. The area around the new city became known as Latium, and the people who lived there as Latins. After Ascanius died, his son became king, and then his son, and then his son. This line of succession carried on for nearly 400 years, and through 12 kings. Each king reigned for a long time, and the land was at peace. Latium grew prosperous and rich, and everyone was happy. The twelfth king in this long line of happy, peaceful monarchs was called Proca. When he died, the throne passed to his son, Numitor. Unfortunately, Proca's other son, who was called Amulius, was very unhappy about this. He ended the long peace by deposing his brother and seizing the kingship for himself. The poor Latins must have been astounded by this treachery after so many years of idyllic existence, and must have been horrified when Amulius had Numitor's two sons killed and Numitor was exiled from the kingdom. Numitor's only daughter was imprisoned, so that she would be unable to have any sons who may threaten Amulius's rule. Of course, though, as we know, a prison can't keep out a god. The god of war, Mars, must have had a premonition that he was to have important children with this woman, and so he went to see her. Before too long, Rhea Silva, as was her name, was pregnant with twins. When the two babies, both boys, were born, Amulius was horrified. He chucked poor Rhea Silva into an even nastier prison and ordered that the twin boys were killed. The servants commanded to carry out the dreadful deed couldn't bring themselves to do it and decided on a different course of action. They set a small basket, carrying the infants adrift on the river and left it to the gods to decide whether they should live or die. Given that they were the sons of Mars, it wasn't likely that their father would just let them die and sure enough, he didn't. He ensured the basket came to rest safely on the shore, near a fig tree, which came to be known as Ficus Ruminalis. Unfortunately for the two sons of Mars, they were not discovered by a person willing to bring them up and take them home, but by a she-wolf. Fortunately, the wolf didn't eat the boys, but instead she suckled them and looked after them. Not long later, the wolf and boys were discovered by a shepherd named Faustulus, he took one look at the very strange sight of a wolf wearing two young babies and guessed they must be very special. He took them home in secret. Now, Faustulus was King Amulius's chief shepherd. Even though he served the king and suspected that these must be the children Amulius had ordered killed, he raised the boys as his own. He risked being executed for treason, but he still did it. The boys, named Romulus and Remus, grew up well-educated, strong and brave. They were friends with the local shepherds, who looked to the young man as their leaders. The boys went hunting together, and they didn't only hunt animals. Like a Roman version of the English folk hero Robin Hood, they attacked thieves and brigands and then shared out the spoils among the people. The twin heroes got quite a name for themselves as defenders of the people. The thieves and brigands, on the other hand, resented these two dashing champions and sought to break up the partnership. Remus was captured and held prisoner. 
they handed him over to a local important man for punishment. This local important man just happened to be the exiled Numitor, and he felt an instant buzz of recognition when the young man was brought before him. Instead of punishing Remus, he asked to be taken to his father. When Faustulus saw the banished king, he immediately admitted who Remus and his brother were. Numitor was overjoyed to find out that his grandsons were alive, and a magnificent feast was held to celebrate. Once Romulus and Remus had discovered their true identity, they visited Numitor and formed a plan to remove Amulius from the throne. The brothers organised a rebellion with the support of their shepherd friends and some others who had remained faithful to the former king. They stormed the royal palace in Alba Longa, killed Amulius and returned Numitor to the throne. Now, Romulus and Remus were heirs to the throne of Latium. Being headstrong and power-hungry young men, though, they decided they didn't want to wait until Numitor was dead before grabbing some of the action. Instead, they decided to found their own city. As the site for their city, they chose a spot next to the river Tiber, very near to where they had been cast out to drown. This, though, is where the harmony and the agreements ended. Romulus and Remus quarrelled about every aspect of their new city. They argued over the design, they argued over the name, and most of all, they argued over who would be its king. Not finding any common ground, the brothers retreated to the tops of two hills near the river. Romulus's hill was called the Palatine, and Remus's the Aventine. From their lofty perches they called for the gods to settle the dispute. The brothers searched for signs from the gods, indicating who they thought should be in charge. They expected the answer to come in the form of birds. Yep, this is an unusual method of divination, but the twins were convinced that the omens would be delivered by feathered friends. And they were right. Before long, some vultures flew over the hills. Remus saw them first. In fact, he saw six of them. Romulus saw them soon after, but he saw twelve. As usual in mythology, the omens could not be easily interpreted. In fact, the message was as clear as mud. Remus and his supporters claimed he should rule because he had seen the birds first. Romulus and his supporters claimed that he should rule because he had seen more birds. Neither side would budge an inch on their own interpretation of the message from the gods, and nothing was solved. In fact, it was much worse than that. A brawl broke out between the two sides. The fighting was fierce and uncompromising, and by the end of it, Remus was dead. Romulus became the ruler of the new city, and it was named Rome, after the victor. Romulus, so the legend has it, created the basis for the Roman army. He selected 3,000 men and 300 cavalry to form his new forces. He called these units his legions. Then Romulus chose a 100 men to help him govern the city. These were known as patricians and came to be known as senators. Despite gaining his victory in a very unsavoury way, Romulus proved to be a good leader. He welcomed in men from other lands who were outcasts or fugitives and the population grew. The former outcasts were very grateful to Romulus and were fiercely loyal both to him and to the new city. Rome thrived and men flocked in. And there, in a nutshell, was the problem. Rome's population grew and grew, but the growth had no chance of being sustained. There were thousands of men flocking to the city, but very, very few women. No women meant no children, and pretty soon, nobody at all. Romulus thought hard. He needed a solution to this very large problem. Sneaky old Romulus planned to hold a festival. He invited the neighbouring peoples and their families to show what a great place this new city was. 
A local group known as the Sabines came in droves, many of them women. Romulus smiled. This was exactly what he had hoped, and now it was time to put his deadly plan into action. In the midst of the celebrations, the men of Rome grabbed the Sabine women and girls and took them prisoner. They, then they attacked and drove out all of the men and boys. Suddenly, the city was full of women. In mythology, terrible deeds do not always backfire on their perpetrators. Romulus, it seems, gave a great speech about how marvellous Rome was and how the Sabine women would be a fantastic asset to the city and would found a race of people who would be the strongest and best in the world. Remarkably, it seemed to work. The Sabine women agreed to stay and marry the Roman men. This slightly unlikely situation was great for the Roman men, and fine, we must presume, for the Sabine women, but it was not at all okay by the Sabine men. They made several attacks on the city of Rome, but they were repelled each time. The Sabines realised they needed a better and more planned method, and they turned to their king, Titus Tatius, and asked him to lead a final assault on the people who had kidnapped their daughters. The Sabines knew they could not take the city of Rome simply by attacking it. They would need to be cunning and clever. Fortunately for them, they found someone on the inside who was prepared to help them. Tarpeia, daughter of the Roman citadel governess Servius Tarpius, was a greedy and grasping girl. She promised to help the Sabine men in return for receiving everything they wore on their left arms. Rubbing her greedy little hands in glee, Tarpeia made her way to the city gates. Chuckling at the thought of all the lovely golden bracelets she was going to get, she opened the city gates. Possessed by the thought of untold wealth, she welcomed the Sabines into Rome. The Sabines, recognising treachery when they saw it, and having no more use for Tarpeia, crushed her with their shields. Thus she received what they wore on their left arms, death by shield, not lovely sparkly presents. Tarpeia was remembered in Rome. The rock from which traitors were thrown to their deaths became known as the Tarpeian Rock. Fierce fighting broke out between the Romans and the Sabines, and neither side seemed to be getting the upper hand. Many men on both sides were killed, and it seemed as if both sides would be fatally weakened. It was the Sabine women who saved the day. They watched their fathers fighting their husbands and wailed. Then they strode into the thickest part of the fighting and pleaded with both sides. If you are weary of these ties of kin or these marriage bonds, then turn your anger on us. It is we who are the cause of this war. It is we who have wounded and slain our husbands and fathers. Better for us to perish than to live without one of you, or the other of you, as widows or orphans. This was total rubbish, of course. It was entirely Romulus's fault that the conflict had arisen. Rubbish though it was, the speech worked. The Romans and the Sabines made peace, and Romulus and Titus Tatius ruled jointly. The period of joint rule was a successful and peaceful one, and only ended when Titus Tatius was killed in a quarrel with the Lavinians. Romulus became sole ruler once more. The great mythical first king of Rome ruled for more than 40 years, and then he suddenly disappeared. During one of his routine inspections of his army on the Campus Martius, the Field of Mars, a violent thunderstorm occurred. Romulus was surrounded by a cloud and vanished from sight. Some people thought that Romulus had been assassinated by the senators of Rome, but they declared he had been taken up to Olympus by the gods. A senator called Proculus announced that Romulus had appeared to him at dawn. He had spoken to the senator, ordering him to go and give the Romans a message. He told Proculus that the gods had decided that Rome was to be the capital of the world. 
the Romans must cultivate the art of war and teach their descendants their skills. No human strength should ever be allowed to resist the Romans. From that day on, Romulus was worshipped as the war god Quirinus. When Romulus died, there was a crisis in Rome. When the founder and long-time ruler of a people dies, there is bound to be confusion and hostility. The Sabines were very unhappy that they had been ruled by a Roman for so long, and demanded that a Sabine be the next king. The Romans thought this idea was utterly ridiculous, and they looked for a Roman candidate. So, they all came up with a frankly crazy idea. They decided that each senator would be king for a day, and from that process they would choose a new king. In the end, the two tribes came to an agreement. The new king would be a Sabine, but he would be chosen by the Romans. The man selected was Numa Pompulius. The Sabines were delighted. Numa was quite frankly an odd man. He had previously rejected all power and spent his life in religious contemplation and speaking with the gods. Numa was peaceful and calmed the population down. He brought religion and worship into the minds of the Romans. He created the role of Pontifex Maximus, who was in charge of all religious worship, and he brought into the city a group of women who came to be known as the Vestal Virgins. Their role was to tend the sacred flame. He constructed the first temple of Janus. The doors of the temple were opened if Rome was at war, and closed if Rome was at peace. The gates were closed for Numa's entire reign, and he reigned for 43 years of lovely peace. The next king was Tullus Hostilius, who was aggressive and warlike. He defeated some of the local tribes around Rome and built the first senate house. He was ever vigilant and rebuilt the Roman army. He fought against the citizens of Alba Longa, managing to convince everyone that the Albans, not the Romans, were the aggressors. Single combat decided the quarrel. Well, actually triple combat. A set of Roman brothers faced an Alban set. Two of the Romans were killed quickly and the third ran away. The Alban brothers followed and were killed one by one as they caught up with him. The Romans were the winners and the Albans fought with the Romans against other local tribes. But Tullus wanted Alba destroyed. He razed the city and brought the Albans into Rome. The fourth king was Ancus Marcius, who was the grandson of Numa. He defeated the Latins and extended Roman territory to the sea. The port of Ostia was founded by him. Mostly, Ancus was like his grandfather and wanted peace. He fought when necessary, but kept the peace when he could. During his reign, the population and territory of Rome grew rapidly, and the city became more and more powerful in the region. Ancus reigned for 24 years. The last three kings of Rome were members of the Tarquinius family. Lucius Tarquinius Priscus was an Etruscan who moved to Rome to take advantage of the opportunities that it offered. He came to the attention of Ancus Marcius, and pretty soon had worked his way up to be one of the king's key advisers. When the king died, Tarquin became guardian of his two sons. Tarquin immediately sent the sons out on a hunting trip, and then demanded an election by the senators for the new king. He'd done his homework well, and won the election in a landslide. Tarquin was a committed and very able king. He defeated the civilization to the north of Rome, his own people, the Etruscans, and was the first person to celebrate a triumph, where he paraded his prisoners in a great procession through the streets of Rome. This ritual would become very important to Roman generals and emperors in later years. The king built the Circus Maximus, a great arena for chariot racing. He also increased the number of senators by a hundred. 
It is said that one of the families raised to senatorial rank by Tarquinius Priscus was the Octavii. Six hundred years later, a member of this family will become the most powerful man in the empire. Tarquinius Priscus was assassinated by men working for the sons of Ancus Marcius, but their rebellion failed. Servius Tullus, a man who had married one of the king's daughters, became the next king by a bit of trickery. As Tarquin lay dying, his wife called Servius into the room. They talked, and then the queen stepped out onto the balcony and made an announcement. She told the crowd that Tarquin was only slightly wounded and would recover soon. In the meantime, they were to base Servius. When some months later it was announced that Tarquin was dead, Servius was the obvious choice as the new king. Servius was another good and successful king. He scored more victories over the Etruscans and celebrated three triumphs. He carried out the first census, where he graded the population according to how much equipment they could bring to the army. He was a popular king, but there was a big problem. Tarquin had had two sons, and one of them, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, wanted the throne for himself and thought that he was the rightful heir and king. Tarquinius was married to one of Servius's daughters, and his brother was married to another. Tarquinius was ambitious, while his brother was not. Their wives were the opposite. Tarquinius's wife had no ambition, but her sister did. The two ambitious ones decided they needed to be together to further their aims, and did away with their partners. Together, they pursued the crown. One day, while the king was away, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus went to the palace and sat on the throne, demanding that the senators recognise him as the rightful king. They did, mainly out of fear. As they were doing so, Servius arrived and demanded to know what on earth was going on. A fight ensued, and Servius Tullus was killed. Legend has it that Tarquinius Superbus was a horrible tyrant, a terrible king who held on to power by executing his enemies and making everyone very frightened. He was arrogant and loved to show how great and important he was. He used trickery to plant evidence of crimes on his opponents and have them executed. A wave of fear passed over the city and the surrounding countryside. His son and heir, Sextus Tarquinius, was said to be even worse. Eventually he was overthrown by a group of senators, led by Lucius Junius Brutus, although he was not executed. And thus ended the legendary reigns of the seven kings of Rome. In the next chapter, we will find out what the Romans put in place to replace their monarchy. So, before I go, a couple of quick reminders. Please check out the History Collage at www.historypodcasters.com. I think you'll find it interesting, and it will introduce you to some other really great history podcasts. Also, do remember that the myths and history of Greece and Rome is reverting to a bi-weekly format, so there won't be a chapter next week, but there will be one the week after. So, until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.